On Racing HQ, Monday's Experts, studying the form of racing's characters. Monday's Experts, hey, they've always got the good oil. Pity you can't put a bet on at the finish of a race. Yeah, welcome to Monday's Experts on this Monday, of course, and uh, it's a wonderful little uh, segment and series we've got growing here at Sky Sports Radio. Plenty of people and a lot of feedback uh, loved our chat last week with Tommy Berry, and we thought this week, with it being Strabroke Week in Brisbane, we'd go up uh, and join a gentleman who has joined us plenty of times before on Sky Sports Radio and also Sky Racing, and um, he's a proud Queenslander. Well, he's, he's living in Queensland, but did he start his journey in Queensland? Let's find out. Michael Maxworthy joins us now on the telephone. Morning, Maxie. Good morning to you, Dave. Yes, I was born in New South Wales, but I did commit a bit of a sin oh, many years ago. And sort of even when I was in New South Wales, converted to Queensland because of my love affair with um, Wally Lewis. I just thought he was just an extraordinary player. And at the time in State of Origin, Queensland were winning the series seemingly every year. So <laughs> think of that. I think back about it now and think, oh, that probably wasn't a good thing to do. But, um, yeah, I was swayed by the champ himself back uh, back in those years. Ah, very good. All right, so let's... Uh, You're well, the same, Mark. You? I am the same. Yeah. Yes, I am the same. But oh, I didn't have the luxury. So growing up in Brisbane... Uh, in the suburbs, I was a you know a dragon supporter as the family were, and uh, they all played for the Blues, the Dragons players. So I naturally went for the Blues, and a bit different to you though because my team wasn't winning all the time, <laughs> Maxie. We were getting beaten, and I was still cheering for them. So anyway, uh, mate, let's um, let's dive back. I hope you're nice and comfortable. We've had a, had a cup of tea this morning. This conversation could go anywhere. That's the beauty of Monday's experts. Um, mm-hmm. So where did you grow up in Sydney? At a, a little suburb called Lernier via Liverpool. Um, went to um, Lernier High School there and uh, became fascinated with, with racing at a very early age because my grandfather was a jockey, but he did retire quite early um, and from his indentures at Randwick when he was an apprentice rider. He rode a number of uh, good horses, track work and metropolitan winners. And uh, my father, Daryl, who passed away only a couple of years ago, he, he held down three jobs when I was a kid. Dave, um, he was a truck driver. Um, he cleaned pubs in the morning, and he always had a couple of greyhounds. So I used to sort of help him out walking the dogs. And then um, a little later on, my parents separated, and uh, my mum married um, Norm Shin, who was a horse trainer, who had just relocated to Warwick Farm. He had a number of horses in, in work at Tumut, where he was um, a very, very successful trainer in the Riverina. And, and in the mid-70s, I think it was, he moved to Warwick Farm, had a, a smallish team of horses, 8 to 10, got up to about 16 at, uh, at his highest point, had a few nice horses. And it was at that time that I was sort of really bitten by the bug, going to track work on a Saturday morning when I was still going to school and, uh, being involved in some of the local horses there at Warwick Farm um, gave me a big buzz. Yeah, okay, all right. Uh, so you, you've, you've grown up around those horses, you're getting a buzz. What was it about the horse that you were so fascinated with? Well, well back then, um, Warwick Farm was much different to what it is now. There were a lot of trainers there. You know, all the big trainers were at Randwick and Rose Hill, and uh, Warwick Farm out there in in the west, uh, there were a lot of very, very talented horsemen. But 
they mainly only had, you know, somewhere between 10, 20, the biggest trainer perhaps had 30. I'll just mention some of these names that won't mean a lot to you. A couple of them will, but uh, guys like Cody Brasson and Glenn Munsey will remember. When I was sort of uh, back in the back in the late 70s, 9, 10 years of age, going to the stables and to the track, you know, leading horses to the track. Clary Connors was there then with his dad, Clary Senior. They had a, a terrific sprinter called Roderick Starr. I fell in love with him. Harry Clark was one of the leading trainers. He had a great miler called Blockbuster and also a top sprinter, Steel Blade, but I love Ray Burton. Um, he had a top apprentice at the time in Rodney Quinn. Rodney would like, ride a lot of horses' work and race ride for my stepfather, Norm. Um, and he rode this mare called Never Despair, this great big grey mare who was a, a super miler as well. John Paletti, a, a guy called Johnny Franks, he had a horse called Flying Flag, who was a wealthy kind of horse, but I used to back him all of the time. Harold Riley, Max Wiggins, um, Paul Cave is still training there now. So it was, a, it was just great to be there and to follow the local horses. Yeah, and and was it was it what was it about the horse? Was it uh, just you know the the thrill of seeing them race? Just to, because they're beautiful animals, aren't they? To see them win, and it used to be back then you'd pick up the paper on like a Monday for a Wednesday, the fields for Canterbury on a Wednesday, Monday um, they'd publish, or was it the Friday before? I can't quite remember that the weights were published in the paper, and from that day I used to get excited. The weights had come out. Then the acceptances on the Monday and then the form on a Tuesday and all the tipsters. Were they tipping one of our horses there at Warwick Farm? Were they tipping um, Cabramatta Jack or Geary Boy? Um, and it, it had built and to actually to see them win, to watch them or scrap them as I did back in those days and to see them win. It, it was just a, an amazing feeling that I sort of couldn't, couldn't get out of my system, you know, up until now, all these years later. When did the race calling start or the media presenting? for horse racing? Well, I, I wanted to be a jockey, but that was never going to happen. And I thought, well, I, I want to do something, maybe in the media. And I went to a, a radio school in Sydney. It was the Max Rowley School of uh, Radio and Television, just to brush up, because out west they used to wear a flannelette shirt and um, certainly didn't speak the Queen's English. But um, sort of brushed up a little bit with Max, and then he, um, he got me a job. He said that I'm going to recommend you... Um, to go to Lithgow, 2LT Lithgow, which changed its name to Radio Night. It ended up going back to 2LT and spent three years there um, just playing records, uh, reading news, covering the football on a Sunday. It was it was fantastic. Um, that was back in the early 80s. A position came up at uh, 2KY. I spoke to uh, former um, top coordinator Rod Batchelder at the time and Rod said, oh, you probably lack a little bit of experience in terms of coordinating racing, which is one of the hardest jobs, as you, you'd understand, Dave. Yep. And anyway, he said, look, send us a, a tape. Um, we'll analyse it. You've probably got a good chance because of your, um, your liking for horse racing. In the meantime, there was a, a guy in Brisbane called Gary B. Ford, very experienced. He'd applied for the same job, and he got the job. So then there was a position available in Brisbane, so then I... I moved to Brisbane. But in the meantime, having the opportunity to work at Lithgow, I sort of met up with Ray Hadley back in the early days. Ray was calling the Appenway Greyhounds, uh, which were up the straight out there, and um, I used to sort of help him out. And when he left, when he was graduating, to calling the gallops at the midweeks and, and, and other things, um, I sort of took over from there. But So working in 
Lithgow, which was only, what, an hour and three quarters from Sydney, it allowed me to still do other things on the weekend. That was one of them. Also work at um, 2UE on a Saturday alongside John Tapp. That was a great experience as well. I was only calling the totes back in those days, but just to stand alongside him in the broadcast box and watch this professional at work was, was quite incredible. So you get the job in Brisbane. The job in Brisbane is just uh, you know, uh, presenting, coordinating? Yeah, it started out as that again, and another legend in my eyes in Wayne Wilson. I, and Wayne was instrumental in me getting the job. Um, I'd sent him a tape, and he, he Wayne was so passionate about racing. He said to me one day, he said, you got the job. Um, you know, it wasn't the greatest tape that we received, but he said I could sense there was a bit of a passion that you had. So, um, yeah, I sort of came on board, again, working alongside him at the races, like being his secretary, answering the phone, getting the prices and doing the announcements and uh, also the market updates for um, uh, for 4BC. Yeah, it was 4BC here yep. back then before the, the Queensland tab purchased its own defunct radio station called um, Radio 10 back then out on right. Coronation Drive. It was a big hit back in the 80s, that station. So they took over that. And then I got an opportunity to do um, an all-racing program, which kicked off in the morning at 9 o'clock. And we went right through until midday, just talking racing every day of the week. So um, that was that part of it, sort of, um, you know, uh, kicking me off there when we, we ended up starting up that brand-new radio station back in about 93. Wow, okay. Now, so we've moved to Brisbane, we're still coordinating, we're heavily involved with racing. At what point do we start calling racing? Was Wayne instrumental in that? Well, it sort of goes back, um, you know, when I was like 11, 12 and 13, I used to practice call. There was a box at uh, Rose Hill, a spare broadcast box. I used to go there and um, and to tell you the truth, I didn't think that I was going to make a, make a go of it. So I sort of put it on the back burner. And as I said, the Greyhounds, to me, um, were a little bit easier. So I was the resident caller there at Appen after Ray Hadley for quite some time. I did think I did a meeting, at, um, a couple of meetings at Penrith and Nowra when the guys weren't, weren't available. So that was the Greyhound side of things. And I was just, I don't think I'm going to make it as a thoroughbred race caller. So just carried on doing that show, the, the, the all racing radio show in Brisbane. Um, not calling races up here at all. Again, I'd go and I, I'd still try and convince myself that I could do this. And on the Wednesdays, when I wasn't required to work with Wayne, I'd be in the box beside him at Doomben or Eagle Farm practicing again. But that didn't come about until 2001 when I, I got the opportunity to go to Singapore. And when, how did that all come about? Because you sort of, you know, we were talking about your, you know, radio career and things are going good in Brisbane. And then, how did Singapore come about? To, you know, considering too that you weren't, it, it wasn't like you were calling full time. No, well, the, I got on really well with Steve Levar, who was a very, very talented race caller from Perth. He came over, uh, Wayne Wilson. He was sort of under under the guidance of Wayne Wilson, and he was just an extraordinary race calling talent, Steve. But he was only with us for a couple of years, and then he moved to Sydney. He might have worked for 2KY for a year or so, but he ended up getting a job in Singapore, and he rang me out of the blue one day and said, look, there's a position here. Singapore 
had just built this brand new track back in 2000 at Cranji. They'd moved from the old Book of Timba track, not far away to Cranji. It was only a five-minute drive further out, and the facility was just extraordinary. And he'd say, um, you and Kerry, whom um, I was married to at the time, will love it here. It's a great place. He said, I'll highly recommend you. And I said, well, what will it be doing, Steve? And he said, well, basically what you're doing in Brisbane, doing dips and analysing the horses in the mounting yard, giving a few comments, watching barrier trials and putting together a show we called Track Talk, which was a, a one-hour preview show of all the meetings in Singapore. There was no mention of calling races until um, <laughs> till I got down to the last couple and uh, an HR person from Singapore rang and said, well, um, you know, what sort of experience have you had of calling races? And I, I sort of paused and, well... Yes, I've caused I've called races, but I didn't say that I hadn't called the gallops, uh, you know, in any official capacity. But I had called the greyhounds, so I had to bluff my way in a little bit. And they said, "Okay, you're down to the final three. We want to bring you in next Saturday night." They flew me all the way in there. We're going to give you a race to call. It was race eight. I think there were only eight or nine runners over eighteen hundred. Steve found a, an easy race for me, and I managed to get through it. And they said, um, "Well, you know." Um, um, we can understand you come over clearly on the public address system. I don't think they had any idea of the quality of the actual broadcast of the call, but they, they could understand me and they were happy with that. So they just basically said, if Steve goes away or if we get a big double header, you might have to step up and call races. So that's how that started. It was a bit nerve wracking, but I just wanted the job and I did anything I could to get it. Two-pronged question, uh, Maxi. Uh, at the time, you just mentioned, you know, before you, you hadn't been married long, young family. To go to Singapore, how big of a decision was that in your mind? And secondly, why did you want the job so much in Singapore? Well, it, it was there and it was going to be easy to get, I felt, uh, with the help from Steve. And I thought, what a great opportunity. Um 2001, had been married two years, and from there, you could go and pretty much see other parts of the world. Um, it's a lot easier to get to from, from Singapore, and and um, the package was quite good too back then, Dave. They were, they were very yep. generous, um, um, and you got looked after as an expatriate worker um, particularly well, and then my son Oliver came along, and it was just such a, a clean place where there wasn't a lot of crime, mainly because if you got caught doing something wrong, you got severely punished. And that, that really worked. And there wasn't a lot. It was just such a safe, beautiful place. Um, and I was thinking maybe I could take another step somewhere else after that. But um, yeah, I was there for almost 10 years and and probably would have liked to have stayed a few more. But an opportunity came up in Sydney there was a job to go to at the time rather than come back to nothing. So, But I must yep. say, it was, it was the right decision. I really enjoyed it. Okay, well, before we get back to coming back to Sydney, highlights of Singapore. I mean, uh, is Takeover Target right up there and, and, and Rocket Man? Are they your two that you just can't believe you got the opportunity to call those races? Yeah, well, that's, that meeting, the Singapore Airlines International Cup meeting, was around about May every year. It was basically the meeting that... The staff there at, at the Singapore Turf Club, they worked towards every year because um, it was pretty much the only major meeting that Singapore had that was on show to the rest of the world. This was a leg of the World Series back then. It followed on from the uh, QE2 Cup in Hong Kong. A month later, it was Singapore's turn to showcase. 
It was a $3 million race, which was a lot of coin back then. We're talking 15 years ago. Uh, and then they, it was complemented by the Singapore Airlines, uh, the, the, the Chris Flyer Sprint over 1,200 metres. They were both international group ones. The other group ones that Singapore have are domestic group ones. These were international. It was a big thing. People would come from all over the world. So to get an opportunity to call um, Rocket Man, um, the, the Chris Flyer that I called him, and he was beaten uh, by Sacred Kingdom in Hong Kong, but he did came out to win the week later, the year later that I left. But, um, of course, take over Target as well. I was just so lucky. I think it was 2006 that I was there when, when he won the Chris Flyer before going on to England. That was a big thrill. But the one that, uh, the race that I, I still remember like yesterday was the uh, the Cup. It was only about, oh, six or eight months before where Steve called me into his office Steve LeBaron said, look, I'm moving on, so you're the man. And this was only six or eight months out from the International Cup, and I'm thinking, crikey, can I do this? this you know me better than anyone, Dave. I'm a nervous wreck at the best of times. You are. So yes. there was a lot of pressure um, calling that race, and, and luckily it was Mummify that, um, that did it for a straighter. I, I knew him from the top of the straight, and, um, yeah, he, he got the job done for Lee Friedman. Yeah, it's some sensational stuff, and it's nice to reminisce and go back and look at um, those a lot of those races. They're on YouTube, and who knows if you're listening, you can maybe tag Maxie in a few of your highlights from that era. And that Dave, that 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 mummify, like it was, it was actually scary because, um, as you know, in Singapore it gets very very humid, and this hadn't happened to me before. But about five minutes before the race, I started sweating. Um, and, and the heat of my forehead was actually um, fogging up the lens of those big binoculars that I've got. Right. And I'm going, oh, I'm like, you've got to be able to do this, you know. And um, coming towards the home turn, I could feel, I could see that the, the lens is becoming fogged. And I just thought, you've just got to do this. And it was a scary moment. But luckily, um, yeah, luckily it turned out all right. So you get uh, you get the opportunity to come back to Sydney, and that was I remember because uh, obviously when Foxtel first appeared at home uh, with my grandfather and grandma, that was amazing having this Sky Racing beamed into, and then they turned it into Sky Racing World. I remember, and, and tell us about that opportunity to come back to to, to Sydney. Yes, um, I was asked to apply for the job and managed to get it. It was exciting because. Um, Sky Racing World so didn't go 24-7, but knocked off around about 3 or 4 a.m. the next morning. We, we, As we do now, we take the international races. But back then, it was we had a full coverage coming through from other parts of the world, from um, England, Ireland, South Africa, wherever. And, and, you know, the hours weren't great. Sometimes I'd start work at 10 o'clock at night until about 3 or 4 in the morning, sort of hosting the international Races and when they had their big carnivals come around, like you, you know your Royal Ascot, the Cheltenham Festival, it was all worthwhile because um, you know uh, they do it so well over there. The, the horses are amazing. I, I met it, I was there when I was covering Frankel, um, and it was just amazing when he won that Guineas there. By I, I think we described him like a low flying UFO. He won that that Guineas down the straight mile there by about twelve lengths. Um, so I was lucky enough to see some great horses through those uh, wee small hours of the morning, but it was a great opportunity. I think Ollie Bell, we, we had guys from um, New Zealand. Ollie Bell came in from the UK to host as well, and I came in from 
Singapore to basically look after the, um, you know, more the Asian side of it, Hong Kong, Singapore, and um, Macau and, and what have you, and, and Japan. So, yeah, that was, that was a big thing. I thought, of, uh, you know, it, 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 was, it was great for me um, to sort of get back to Australia anyway and at least come back to a job that I really enjoyed doing. One thing that uh, I learned about you, Maxie, uh, when we first started uh, working together, uh, and it was, you know, you obviously with your love of Singapore and also Hong Kong racing, was that away from uh, the binoculars and away from the microphone, you're actually, you've, you've had quite a bit of success purchasing horses for some of your clients or some clients of yours, friends of yours, in Hong Kong. Um, tell us about a few of the horses that you have purchased for Hong Kong, because, I mean, to... to to get a horse and, and have an eye for it here and have that sort of uh, belief and ability to get them to, to perform over there or think, you know, to your clients, hey, look, I think this horse can win your races over there. That's a skill and an art, mate. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of pressure because um, in Hong Kong, it's very difficult to become an owner. You have to be a member of the jockey club and then they have basically a raffle June every year, um, you put your name in. If you're a member of the jockey club, they spin it around, something like that. If your name comes out, you get a permit, which you have to, you know, import a horse from other parts of the world into Hong Kong. I think it's within 12 months. Um, so you've got to get it right. Um, and there's just one chap in Hong Kong that I've become very friendly with, whom I met through a mutual friend in Singapore. And he's the one person that I really spot for and we have had a lot of luck. The first horse that I sort of recommended was a horse called Multi Victory. He was a beauty. Found him off a trial at Cram, but he was, he was owned by Price Bloodstock, David Price. David uh, yep. has got this great eye and this knack of buying yearlings at sales, having them trained up pretty much in Victoria by a number of his trainers, getting them to, um, to trial level and becoming impressive in trials and then he puts them on the open market. He sells them mostly to his own clients, but there are others. If there's a, an overflow of horses that he's got, and I just rang my friend up, Ron, and I said, look, I've just spotted this horse. It didn't win the trial. Ran second. Glenn Boss rode it, and I think he was called Five Against One. Uh, he ended up being multi-victory in Hong Kong. And he said, yeah, I've, I've been talking to them, David and, and what have you, and they're trying to convince me to buy this one, and you're telling me this. I said, you just buy this horse, Rahom. Um, and he ended up, he, they came to an arrangement, and he won right through, he won a listed race. I think he won about eight, around about two and a half, three million Aussie dollars. And then since then, we had good old multi-max. He won a trial at Doombin, purchased him off um, Liam Birchley. Chris Munch rode him in the trial. He won eight up there. Not a top-class horse by any stretch of the imagination. He hovered at his height up, up in class three, but mostly class four. Won eight races and I think he won a couple of million. Um, a horse called uh, Multi Gogo won four at Happy Valley over 1600. There's been a couple that haven't performed at all, but um, the ones that have have more than paid their way. So it's, it's, it's just an interesting sidelight to see how they go from here, Dave. And it's not easy. They've got to go to a totally new lifestyle that most of them. I'm not used to because there's no spelling. You know, they've asked only just the number of spelling areas there in Hong Kong. So um, they do get the, the best possible attention, um, but it's not the same. So they've got to go there. They've got to acclimatise and they've got to adjust to a, a, a total change, 
a lot of horses don't do that. So, and to see them winning there is is just extraordinary. I, I get an, an amazing thrill. The latest one that's doing well is called Multi Million. He's won five races, bought him for thirty five thousand dollars, and he's won he's won one point three million now. He's actually running at Happy Valley. I'm waiting for the draw to come out on Wednesday night. So, um, yeah, in a nutshell, that, that's been. Um, a good little hobby for me, if you like. Maxie, you're not a ruthless gentleman by any means as well um, in terms of, you know, um, in terms of the business side of things. You know, you're not one of these blokes that once the transaction's been made, you uh, you move on. Um, you, 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 when, you, when I watch these horses race for you, even though you, you're not in the ownership with Ron and his team in Hong Kong, it's like they're running for yourself. There's a lot of pressure there. What do you find more nerve-wracking, calling the races with the foggy the foggy oh. specs or uh, <laughs> all these horses going around in Hong Kong? Uh, look, um, yeah, there's not much in it. There is a lot of pressure. You know, they put their faith in you. Um, and uh, luckily that, that Ron is totally understanding. He, um, he follows New Zealand, right? Not a punter. Not a punter, but he just he just loves the thrill of the, the Hong Kong Jockey Club and watching his horse and getting that photo. We often hear it, um, you know. People say, you know, the Asian owners in particular just love to get that photo up on the wall of their horses. It means more to them than the, than the money. Um, if they're a member of the Hong Kong Jockey Club, there's a big chance they're quite wealthy. But that's not what it's all about. It's a, it's about winning and, and sharing it with friends. They love to dine out in Hong Kong and get 10, 20 people around a big table with the lazy Susan and, and you know, there's one person that shouts, they're very generous. And for them, it's just all about, you know, getting that photo on the wall. Apologies, Maxie. I just lost my connection there uh, with the internet here in Sydney. Mate, um, I was going to ask you about uh, the best horse you've seen and your favourite horse. Yeah, well, um, I've got to say, uh, my, you know, my vintage, I think most people... Uh, refer to Kingston Town, and it was a wonderful era, the 80s. Uh, we had that, that great horse that could do anything. He could walk on water, and also, lucky enough at the time, um, the great Manicato in Victoria, he was uh, the gun sprinter that sort of, you know, stretched it out to 2,000 metres. These were two horses that are uh, measuring sticks, and there we've seen some wonderful horses, if not better horses since. I mean, how do, how do we... How do we line up uh, different generations with horses like, you know, Black Caviar and Winx? But they're the horses that did it for me. They were never spared. If they were fit and well and they were eating up, they'd run from 1,000 metres in Kingston Town's case up to 3,200 metres. So they were the two. And in more modern times, I just had a, you know... Uh, I just look up at a horse like Bo Road, you know, um, Vic Rail, an unconventional way of training him, you know, no shoes, um, his extraordinary front-running style, Cyril, Cyril Smile. I thought that was a great story, uh, some of his wins in Victoria and some of the broadcasts by the great uh, Bill Collins uh, will always live in my, my memory. But, yeah, Bo Road, but going back further than that, definitely Kingston Town and Manicato. All right. Uh, here's a question. I've been asking a few of our uh, Monday's experts about this. Um, is it, what are you worried about for our, the future of our game? Oh, look, it's 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 um, it's got to be the, the the tree huggers, however you want to sort of say. 
Um, you know, we've got to be very, very careful nowadays with um, with horse racing. Um, you know, there has been some issues in that regard with the use of the persuade. I don't like to call it that four-letter word. Um, we've got to change. You know, even in the media, we've got to change with our commentary on horses and what have you. But that's what concerns me the most. If you you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I totally agree and, and well said. But I think it's an important thing because, uh, you know, you you talk about in these segments and we talk about, even with other guests, this wonderful journey you've been on and that you were young and and, and you grew up around the stables, etc. And I think that, you know, you want that opportunity to happen for someone else. And, you know, and Absolutely. when you're yeah. long gone and I'm long gone, we want it to continue on, you know. Yeah, these these animals are just a beautiful, majestic animal, and they get so well looked after in the main. We know there are other sides to it, um, but you know they're, they're just a great animal, and I've only ever seen the good. Um, you know how well horses are treated, and it's great that um, you know there has been pressure put on the industry to make sure that we care for these horses when their their racing days are over and there are measurements in place now that there's farms where horses go i think even china down there in southern new south wales china marsden um looks after retired horses to try and rehome them re-educate them to become you know pleasure horses so that that little bit of pressure that's been put on the industry has probably been a good thing but i just think we've got to be very careful going going forward what uh before i let you go your favorite track to have a bet at I just love Randwick. I've just always loved Randwick. Um, my stepfather won a, a race there. Um, it was a mile race, Easter. You know, that was back when we had all of the races over the Easter long weekend. A horse called Toro won there over the mile. The country cup, it was on the Monday. Heavy rain. And it was just such a thrill to be in the grandstand watching that race live. Um, and it just always fascinated me, Royal Randwick. Um, Norm's horses were trained at Warwick Farm. I, I got a special, special um, a mention there. Used to love to go to the Warwick Farm races, but Randwick is when you could really put your top hat and tails on it. A wonderful track with that rise, um, big stretches, and, and the shoots. It's just a, a fabulous track. So clearly, um, it stands out for me. And if you weren't in the job you are now, Maxie, or you didn't have that love of horses like you did early doors, what would you be doing? I don't think I could, could do anything. I, I, don't, I don't think I'd be any good at anything, Dave, to tell you the truth. Um, I'd probably be washing up in some restaurant. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I'll turn but it up. I, I've got to say that I am lucky that I have learned a few things over the years, you know. Um, watching me, it's all I, I live and breathe it, as you know, Um and I think that I've got sort of, you know, some idea. Um, and I'd probably, yeah, if it wasn't doing this, not, I really don't know. Um, I haven't had to think well, about it up and, up until now anyway. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you're not doing anything else, mate. Um, you're a, a gentleman uh, and it's wonderful to talk to you. And I've always said um, uh, this about you and, you know, I know that when I first started at Sky in that new big world, um, you're always there to sort of say, Dave, you need a hand, and 
with advice and and uh, I just loved your passion for the having a punt and, and watching wonderful horses, mate. Um, have a great week. It's uh, it's a big week in Queensland with the Stradbroke. Uh, it's going to be wonderful to see it all unfold on Saturday. Do you have a tip? Do you have a feeling uh, for our listeners? Well, we've got the draw tomorrow. That's going to tell us a lot. Um, everybody's talking about the format of the Kingsford Smith Cup last Saturday week, one very impressively. By Vega one, there were some good runs to come out of that, but there was only four lengths top to bottom. There were a few unlucky horses as well. I'm interested in Mr. Quickie, who's won the Derby here a couple of years ago at Eagle Farm. He's got a bit of good three firm track form. Philip Stokes is a great trainer. I think his handicap is right. Fifty six. When I look at Stradbrokes uh, these days, Dave, anything above fifty six, I, I sort of run scared of because of you know you're giving away three, four, five kilos to some really talented horses. But I think 56 is achievable for Mr. Quickie. And I'd be hoping he draws a decent alley. It will have been a couple of months since his race, but he is good on the fresh side. And with, you know, Philip Stokes uh, behind him, he's the horse that I'm sort of warming up to right now. Maxie, enjoy the week. Thanks for coming on and being a part of Monday's Experts. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Dave. It is 11.36 on Sky Sports Radio. Now, Grant Boyden is going to take you through uh, the next hour and a half here on Sky Sports. So we've got uh, the whip around coming up shortly. Then we'll get into our live racing. See you tomorrow, everyone, as we will kickstart Racing HQ on a big strap broke week.